So, uh, man, Holy Spirit, I just thank you that you're here with us right now. And Lord, that you have something on your heart special for us. And I'm asking God that our ears would be open to hear, that our eyes would be open to see what it is that you're saying. And Father, I, I'm asking, Lord, just for your wisdom to come through this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. We're going back to Matthew 16, which we were last week, but we're jumping uh, to verse 1, so ahead of that. We don't have it on the screen. We have to be uh, using our own Bibles. I'm making you use your own Bibles these days. So um, I'm going to read out of the ESV, Matthew chapter 16. Starting in verse 1, and so last week, you know, we started our new series, What is Church? And so what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks is really taking a fine-tooth comb to what is the American church, what's good, what's not good, what's helpful, uh, what's not helpful, what is sort of tradition that's not a problem, what is tradition that probably needs to go. So I'm just going to tell you, we're going to, uh, we're going to be taking a fine-tooth comb to this. So we're going to hit stuff that probably is going to be like, ooh, I don't like that. And that's okay. My challenge to you is to do the research on your, on your own, to spend the time thinking about it, praying about it, reading the scriptures for yourself. And wherever you land, I bless you to land there. If you land somewhere different than me, that's okay. We're grown adults and we can think for ourselves. Amen. Um, but I hope that we can move forward through this together. So last week we looked at the spirit of religion and how the spirit of religion has been affecting us specifically as Oklahomans for a long time. So as the week has gone on, I'm just curious, have any of you guys recognized things about the spirit of religion? Like, oh, I wasn't even aware of that. Anybody have a moment like that? Awesome. Some of you guys, perfect. So today we're going to be uh, talking about spiritual authority and what authority do pastors actually have in the Bible. So this should be a real fun one for us in Oklahoma, because uh, if you've ever been a part of multiple churches, you've probably seen a lot of different expressions of leadership. And so we're going to look at what's the biblical one this morning. So turn in Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to read this to you, uh, starting in verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and they're talking to Jesus, and to test him, and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he, being Jesus, answered them, when it's evening, you say, it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be a stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. And when the disciples reached the other side, we're in verse 5 now, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 12, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You guys ever heard this scripture before? One interesting tidbit for you, in Jerusalem at that time, because of the, the geography actually and the dust in the air, the sky would be red in the morning, so that's not like, a, like some sort of a sci-fi thing, that's how their sky looked. It's kind of like our sunsets have an interesting hue because our dirt is red, it's just 
how it was geographically. But Jesus is rebuking them, and, and he makes this statement here in Matthew 16, beware of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. But this same story shows up in Mark chapter 8. And in Mark chapter 8, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And then we see Jesus say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, again, in Luke chapter 12, which is a different story than this one right here. So this is clearly something that mattered to Jesus. And if it mattered to Jesus, then it should matter to us. Amen? So this is interesting. What is the leaven of the Pharisees? I want to submit to you, and this is my opinion, that the leaven of the Pharisees is what we would call the spirit of religion. And the leaven of Herod is what we would call the political spirit. That's, that's my perspective. When you read it through like that, to me, it looks like that. And Jesus is saying, look, even just a little bit of this can corrupt your whole worldview. Have you ever had a confrontation with someone that like, didn't go well, and it's just your brain is kind of in that stunned moment? Anybody ever had that? It's like you leave that and all, it, you're just playing it on repeat and you're thinking about it. So Jesus has this epic confrontation. I mean, he has just told these leaders they are a wicked and unfaithful generation. Not a fun thing to do. I mean, I don't even think Jesus took joy in rebuking the Pharisees, okay? So he goes from that, and this is how I picture the story playing out, that he's like in stunned mode a little bit, just processing, and he gets in the boat, and he hears this grumbling about bread, and it's like, you you know that moment where you just tune in all of a sudden, you're not even aware, and then all of a sudden you're hyper aware, and he's going, ugh. Don't think about the bread. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And they're like, what is happening? And then I almost see Jesus kind of zoning out again while the disciples are still squabbling. He comes back and he's like, did you not hear me? And they're going, clearly not, Lord. Like, what, what is leaven of Pharisees? Well, in the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament and in the dozen or so times that leaven is mentioned in the New Testament, it is almost always synonymous with sin and corruption. There's only one time in the New Testament that the word leaven is used in a positive sense, and it's a story about the kingdom of God advancing. So anytime that Jesus says leaven, the disciples would have immediately understood this has to do with corruption at some level. This has to do with something bad. And I I just think this is so interesting. Let's look at what the Pharisees were about real quick. I just have a couple of observations about the Pharisees, and I think this will help us see what the leaven was that Jesus was talking about. The first one is this. In Luke chapter 12, Luke actually describes the leaven of the Pharisees as hypocrisy. So if you flip over to that chapter and read that story, you're going to see he says, the leaven of the Pharisees, comma, which is hypocrisy. Remember, Luke was writing to uh, Gentiles. He wasn't writing to Jewish people. So they didn't have any kind of understanding about the Pharisees. So it's definitely hypocrisy. What else can it include? The Pharisees saw themselves as God's representation to the people. The Pharisees were actually not very politically motivated. They weren't. They, they used politics when it suited their purposes, but they were not trying to be governing rulers from a government standpoint. Uh, the Pharisees were deeply concerned with image. Deeply concerned. They, to the point where the parable of the Good Samaritan is so offensive to them because Jesus was touching on the fact that they would rather let someone die on the side of the road than potentially have their image tarnished. Because as a Pharisee, you weren't allowed to be around a corpse. If you were, you had to go through all this ritual purification process. And so Jesus picks this story to basically highlight, look, you guys are so blind that you would rather maintain your image of purity while someone is dying than be like God to them. 
that's like the nature of hypocrisy, right? They were very concerned with their image. They were deeply concerned with being separate. The word Pharisee itself is, is a, a term that basically means separated out. They were the, the high elite. They believed themselves to be the ones who were truly following the commands of God. And if you were not like them, you were absolutely inferior. Uh, other things, the, the Pharisees, they conspired to silence and cancel anything that threatened their authority, spiritually speaking. I mean, I think it's like the first time Jesus does anything that's on their radar, they're starting to try to kill him, right? Well, this guy's got to go. And they actually did that with a lot of people who were false prophets who were coming to try to be like the Messiah. That was just their thing. We'll cancel them and we won't have to deal with it. Um, they were absolutely fear-driven, 100% driven by fear, fear of what God would do to them, fear of what the people would think, fear of how they own, their own colleagues perceived them, absolutely fear-driven. And um, two more observations. The Pharisees, one of the things I believe Jesus is pointing at in Matthew 16 is that the Pharisees relegated God down into the natural realm. So what God could do or would do was subject to the laws of the natural realm. So here's what we see when Jesus rebukes his disciples. They're saying, oh, we have no bread. We're going to be hungry. But they're sitting in the same boat as provision itself. Right? But in their minds, they could not understand how provision itself could work with something that didn't exist. Because they were relegating God under the law and the government of the natural realm. But we know that God exists outside of that realm, right? He is outside of time and space. He's not bound by physics. He's not bound by gravity. He operates outside of that. And so Jesus is looking and saying, look, even your thought that I can only work with what you have is the leaven of the Pharisees. It's interesting, right? And the last thing I observe about the Pharisees, I'm sure we could go on and on and, and make a much longer list than this, but they are absolutely top-down leadership. It starts at the top. I mean, if you've ever done any type of business training, you know it all starts at the top. Culture begins at the top. Leadership begins at the top, right? And it's like a pyramid. And what's interesting about this is that when Jesus prepares his disciples for leadership, the pyramid is not this shape, it's this shape. The pyramid of Jesus' leadership is bottom-up right? It's the least of these. It's those who serve the most get, uh, get promoted. It's those who are aware. It's fascinating that the Pharisees are so concerned with the pyramid hierarchy going up when Jesus is over here showing, look, that's not me. So what is the leaven of the Pharisees and how do we make sure that it's not in us? I'm just going to tell you right now, it probably is to some degree. Because unless we are being aware, as Jesus tells us, to beware of it, then it does work itself in. Yeast is really small. Anybody make their own bread with yeast? I don't. I'm just raising my hand to show you guys how to raise your hand, I guess, because I've never used yeast. I've used it one time in my life, and that was sort of enough for me. I'm not the kind of person that's like, oh, that would be fun. Uh, let's make a huge mess, and then I have to clean it up. Like, not interested. So uh, for those of you guys that do make bread, or, or, you know, like my sister-in-law always makes yeast rolls, right? It doesn't take very much to affect the whole thing of dough. Back in, in the day when Jesus lived, during the Passover week, you had to rid your house of every grain of yeast, every morsel of yeast, because that was the image of sin. And so what Jesus is pointing out and, and making the connection to leaven is that it doesn't take very much to affect you. It doesn't take very much to infect you. And we have to be aware of it. I just want to say to you, I'm just going to buckle myself in. 
I just want to say to you that I believe a majority of the problems that people have incurred from church leadership has to do with the leaven of the Pharisees more than anything else. And I want to go on record, we're going to talk a little bit about church wounding today, and I want to go on record as having said that there's two types of church wounding that happens, okay? One of them is good, and the other is very bad. So let's talk about the good one first so we can just get that out of the way. The church, the body of Christ, is the mechanism that Jesus created to bring you into maturity. So what that means is you can't fully be mature without being a part of a body, okay? I didn't choose it, that's just how it is. But when you are a part of the body, you will be hurt at some point. You're going to stub your toe, you're going to get a hangnail, you're going to walk into a bar. Something's going to happen and you're going to get hurt. And I believe, to an extent, Jesus designed it like that because through the pain, we are invited into a deeper place to become like him. This is Jesus who sat and ate with Judas on the night he was to be betrayed by him and did not trash him, did not snub him, did not treat him badly. There's something about our journey to become like Christ where we have to go through squabbles with people in the body to bring us to maturity. That's the good kind. Here's how you know whether it's good or bad. When you come up against something that offends you and and hurts you to some degree, you're invited by God into a place where you have to learn to forgive, right? We've all been through this. And so you get the choice by the Lord to choose to stay in that church body or not. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. I really believe God gives you the choice of who you get to submit to. But when it's God that is rubbing on you, when it's God that's putting his finger on you, when you choose to leave and go to a different body, you're going to find that he still wants to work on that same thing. That just because you changed groups of people doesn't mean that he has changed what he thinks is the next thing you need to work on. Does this make sense? That's how we know it's from God. Do you have to submit to that? No, you have free will. You can, you can be like, look, I don't want to deal with that and go live your own life. That's fine. But in the maturing process, God is after us to confront the stuff that holds us back. Amen? So that's the good kind. So that's the kind that we eventually get over. That's the kind that we go, man, that, I didn't like that, but I started thinking about it and I realized, you guys know what I'm talking about? Those type of moments. Then there's the bad kind. And I'm not going to do a show of hands because I can pretty much guarantee all of us would have hands and feet and maybe elbows also raised that we've been through where we've had pain and hurt from church leaders that was not ordained by God. Okay. And I'm going to say to you as a pastor, I know for a fact this happens. It happens on a number of levels. One of the reasons is because pastors are also humans, and they do walk in their flesh sometimes, and some of them walk in their flesh a lot more than they should. (laughs) Okay? So it is possible that you have been wounded and hurt by a pastor who was actually operating under the leaven of the Pharisees as opposed to the leading of the Holy Spirit to bring you to a place of maturity. And that's where I want to hit on today is, what is spiritual authority? What actually is it? Because we all could probably say, when I say the word spiritual authority, you probably have an image of somebody popping up in your mind like, oh, yeah, well, they really believed that, right? And some of us, it takes years to come out from from these constructs of authority because we believe that that person is assigned by God and therefore speaks as God to us and is in some ways infallible. And I believe that is the leaven of the Pharisees, not what the Bible actually says. So can we dig into these scriptures for a minute? Is that okay? All right. I know you guys are all like, oh, I can, I can feel it. We're going to get through it. It's all right. 
Um, all right, let's look at Jesus for a second. That'd be a good idea. Jesus demonstrates what is spiritual authority. <laughs> he demonstrates spiritual authority so good. The number one observation I have with Jesus as our authority is he is not threatened in his position as authority one bit. Not one time in the entire Gospels is Jesus like, oh, you don't know that I'm the son of God? Oh, well, let me just do this miracle for you, right? There's nothing in that in him, right? He's, he's like, oh, you don't want to believe it? Well, bless you. The rich young ruler comes to him and says, look, I've been following every single thing. And Jesus, in the good type of authority, says, here's the one thing you should be focusing on. And the guy goes, oh, and he leaves. And Jesus doesn't go, oh, man, you missed it. He doesn't shame the guy. He doesn't, right? There's, there's none of that. He's just very comfortable in the fact that he is God. He is the most powerful force there is. And what I love about that is that Jesus demonstrates what pure authority is, that it's not something that can be shaken and it shouldn't be threatened. And therefore, people in authority should never threaten other people, right? So Jesus comes and he comes to serve. He says in Matthew 20, starting in verse 20, you guys know the scripture, he says, the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve. So if we're talking about what is a biblical authoritative figure, it better look like these three things I'm about to tell you. The first one is that they come to serve, not to be served. And if the person that you're thinking of as a spiritual authority doesn't have that down, something is wrong. There's a little bit of leaven at least in that picture. The second thing, Jesus got involved with people. Matthew 9, chapter 10, chapter 9, verse 10. When he goes to Matthew's house, for example, that's what that scripture is. He goes to Matthew's house and he eats with these people the Pharisees would never be caught dead with. Why? Because he's demonstrating what real spiritual authority looks like. It's comfortable in the midst of differences. Now, he doesn't go to Matthew's house to seek out sin and temptation. He goes to be light invading into darkness. Have you guys watched the Chosen series? It's like the best, the best demonstration of the gospel. I love it the, in terms of what's been out there media-wise. And I love that scene when Jesus goes to Matthew's house. He goes to eat with him and he brings redemption itself into that environment. He doesn't go looking to find trouble, right? So where the Pharisees are showing us that you have to be separate and you can never be bothered by the issues of the common person, Jesus is showing us that to be a good leader, you get involved with the people that you're leading. The third one is showing God to people. Um, John chapter 5, 19, you guys know the scripture when Jesus says, uh, I only do what I see the Father doing. So we've got the Pharisees pretending to be the ex example of God to the earth. And then we've got the, um, Jesus showing us what God is actually doing. When he trains up his disciples, he trains them to embed themselves in the lives of the people around them. Not to be apart, not to be untouchable or unapproachable, I heard a, a, um, a speaker from a really well-known global church preaching one time, and she said, you know, um, and she said, I go to all these churches, and they have this, like, pastor's parking lot that's behind the building, and they have hallways to the sanctuary that are behind the building so that the pastors don't have to interact with people. And these are larger churches, so, I mean, I, I will say there's a practical component to that, that sometimes it's hard to move through a crowd of people when you've got to be on stage at a certain time and people want to talk to you. I get that. But the sub part of that culture is it creates this environment where you don't get to know the pastor at all right? That you don't have any connection with them. And she said, I refuse to deal with that system. So when people come and pick me up and they take me to the guest speaker parking lot, I tell them, would you drop me off at the front of the building? And they're always like, I'm sorry, what? She's the keynote speaker. I'm like, what? She goes, no, I, I'm not going to do that. I want to walk through the crowd. I want to actually say hi to the people who I'm going to be ministering to. And I didn't realize until she said that how 
much we've just accepted this thinking that it's okay for pastors to like be completely separate from their people. In this structure, in the pyramid top structure, what we have is that the pastor only gets involved in the up and coming leaders' lives or in the top level leaders' lives, and then they don't, and they end up insulating themselves from everybody else. And the moment that that happens, we start to look more like the Pharisees than we do like Jesus. It's not that Jesus didn't pull away or have times with his inner circle. He did, right? But he also had times where he ministered to the prostitute who was literally caught in the act of adultery. And that was just as much a day's work as for him as sitting around the bonfire teaching about the kingdom. So I think in the American church, the leaven of the Pharisees has come in in such a way that would, I think, can I just be honest with you guys? I think it offends Jesus. I really do. Multiple times in the scripture, he tells us to look out for this, that this is not good. And so my thinking was, if we're going to start taking a fine-tooth comb to the church, we've got to start with the top. We've got to start with looking at the leaders. Because I, I'm just going to say to you, as a pastor, I think there's a lot of us who have been looking at it completely wrong. And I'm not going to say that there's certain people that we should vilify. I don't believe that, right? I think everybody is genuinely trying to be responsive to the needs that they've got and trying to do that. But we've got to look at the leaven of the Pharisees and we've got to be honest with ourselves about it. So biblical leadership, it's, it's servant-led. It's from the bottom up. In the Bible, the highest calling that you can receive, I know some of you guys are like, I want to know what's the best thing I could do with my life. The highest calling you can receive, it's not apostle, it's slave. That's the highest. You want to be the highest in the kingdom, it means you're the biggest slave of all. That's what Paul called himself, right? He's a bondservant. He, was, he had literally surrendered his right and his will to everything. To me, what that means is, even though I might be an American citizen, and I might have a choice in my vote, and I might have a choice in my opinion because my constitution gives that to me, when I give myself to Jesus and I let Jesus promote me, into more places of surrender and more places of surrender, I will eventually get to the place where my vote is no longer mine as well. That my opinion about politics is no longer mine. That my opinion about how to structure my time isn't mine. Why? Because the highest calling in the Bible is to be a complete slave to God. Let's let that sink in for a minute. And again, biblical leadership... Jesus' plan, we talked about this last week, what was Jesus' plan for the church? His plan was for his people to embed with his people, <laughs> to live among them, to be, in, in that time period, we went to Peter's house when we were in Israel a while back, and, and the, the, it's like basically an apartment. I mean, they're little houses, and they shared a kitchen inside of a courtyard. So every single day, they were surrounded with people. And I believe what Jesus was trying to show is, look, you cannot live for me fully and insulate yourself from all the other people that you don't like. That's not the kingdom. If we're going to really be the kingdom, we're going to be a part of people's lives even when we don't like it. Why? Because it's part of our maturity process, Right? All right, how are you guys doing? Oh, no. Okay. Whip out some jokes here. How are you guys doing? Everybody okay? Yes. All right, I want to look at the biblical levels of church leadership for a second, okay? So I find three, and you guys might do your own study and come back to me and say, look, Rachel, I found some others. But I found three. The first one's going to be the fivefold ministry, apostles, prophets, shepherds, evangelists, teachers. Then we're going to find the elders, and then we're going to find the deacons. And for those of you guys that are wondering, I'm not glossing over the verses that talk about women in leadership. We're going to cover women in leadership at another time. I just don't want to do a disservice to it and just 
make a quick statement. So clearly I'm standing here preaching to you, so you all know where I stand on that as the senior pastor. Um, But we're going to actually do a deep dive into that one of these weeks. So I'm not trying to gloss over that. But what we see in the Bible is we've got apostles, we've got the fivefold ministry. Jesus gives these giftings to his people and they're for, do you guys know what they're for? The equipping of the saints. So Jesus did not call people to be apostles, prophets, shepherds, evangelists, teachers, to be the superstars of the faith. They're actually the slaves. Grant loves to preach about this, and he talks about how the fivefold is actually the dirt that everybody walks on to get closer to Jesus. If you want to be in ministry, that's what you should prepare yourself for. It's not pleasant a lot of the time. But what's awesome is that there's a grace for it, and you get to meet with God, but it's, it's not something that we should aspire to, to be like, oh my gosh, I can't wait when God calls me to be an apostle if, or a prophet or whatever. It's like, if you're thinking that, then there's probably some leaven in there because you've misunderstood what Jesus is really calling you into. So Ephesians 4.11, we get this, God gave these fivefold to the church. Ephesians 2, we get the scripture about the apostles and the prophets and, and then Jesus being the cornerstone for the foundation. Um, in my opinion, that's actually talking about the prophets of the Old Testament and so... We can get into that later, but it's my opinion. And then you've got Acts 6, which talks about this moment when things get weird. The apostles had been doing this food ministry, ministering to the poor, right? And then they get so busy, they have to appoint people to take over the food ministry. And I think this is where modern day church gets this hierarchy thinking from. Um, And I think we've really misunderstood the scripture. So it says that in Acts 6, that the apostles went away to pray more and to be with God more because there was, too, there was too much need for them to give themselves to. I guarantee you, that did not mean the apostles never went back to the food line to serve. It's not possible in my mind to concede that Jesus had spent all this time with these guys, and they just abandoned the work that they spent all, no way. They just carved out more time for themselves. And when we look at Acts 6 and we give permission for pastors and leaders to not be involved in community of the people, then we're looking at it wrong, okay? And then we've got elders. Uh, Here's an interesting thing to note. In the Bible, elders and pastors are pretty much the same thing. I don't know if you knew that. But the role of a pastor that we would call a pastor and the role of an elder is really the same thing in the Bible in terms of terminology. So how do we know about elders? Well, we have like three different, four different scriptures that talk about it. 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 5, Titus chapter 1, Ephesians 4, and Hebrews 13. So in the whole book, we've just got those four. And the juiciest ones are in 1 Timothy where he describes what kind of a person is fit for that office, for that spot. Then we see deacons, and for deacons, there's really only one scripture primarily, 1 Timothy 3. You could make the case that when the apostles were selecting Stephen and the others uh, to be the the servants for the lunch thing, (laughs) terrible way to say that, but you guys know what I'm talking about, in Acts 6, uh, that he was selecting deacons for that. Okay, so you could make that case. But deacons have this, had to have the same characteristics as uh, overseers slash elders slash pastors, but they weren't called to preach. They didn't have to preach or teach the word. Therefore, they could be new converts. Elders couldn't be. They had to be seasoned believers because they were going to be teaching the word. Um, I'm summarizing these scriptures, but I'm, you can take a screenshot. You can take a picture of my notes later if you want to do your own uh, deep dive for it. So, so this is it. And when I look at this, I'm like, okay, so we have created huge hierarchy structures off of a really small number of scriptures. And then we have empowered these hierarchical structures to be sort of the voice of God to us 
off of a really select few scriptures. And I'm not here to defend anybody's structure, right? I trust and I expect that everybody's hearing from God about how they organize their church. And, and they're going to be held accountable for that even if they're not hearing from God. So I'm going to trust God with that, right? I'm just here to tell you that if we're going to be able to help other people navigate the wounds that they experience, navigate the culture that's around us, navigate the way religion has infiltrated the churches around us, not all of them, but some, then we have to be able to understand what God was going for so that we can represent him correctly. Does this make sense? So let's look at the two scriptures that talk about obeying your leaders. Hebrews chapter 13, turn to that. Hebrews 13 verse 17. I hope this is interesting for you guys. Hebrews 13 verse 17. All right, 17, here we go. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give to, of those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So what is this saying? Obey your leaders because when you're a burden, they're annoyed, and then they're not as good of a leader. That's what I read. Is that what you guys read? I mean, let's read it again. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your soul. So that's a good thing to note, that the pastors over you, God has entrusted something to them. Um, And they're going to have to give an account. And then let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Well, that's an interesting verse. Okay, please do that. I appreciate that, right? That, that's helpful. Uh, but it's fascinating. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 5.12. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, okay? Here's the other one we get about obeying your spiritual leaders. Now, I'm not talking about governmental leaders. There's plenty of scripture in the New Testament about obeying governmental leaders, right? And there's some harsh scriptures about that. So that's not what we're talking about right now. We're talking about spiritual leaders. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, here we go. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor you among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be it, this is 13, be at peace among yourselves. so when I read these two scriptures here's what I don't see I don't see that you are disobeying God when you disobey your pastor I don't see that you're going to hell when you don't do what your pastor says and I don't see that God is angry with you when you don't submit to your pastor's leadership do you guys see that in those two so how did we get here (laughs) How did we get here to where you have leaders who are saying that? I have had a, had a leader say this to me once. They said, look, I'm concerned for you because if you do this, and I understand their heart was so genuine. I understand that. But they said, look, if you, we were saying this is what God has called us to. We need to obey the Lord. And their response was, I don't believe this is what God has called you to. That's fine. You're not going to stand before Jesus. I am. <laughs> and he, for me. And he says, um, and he says, And if you do this, I'm afraid you will come out of your covering and the enemy will have permission to come after you. Now, this was said to me on the heels of having lost our child at 20 weeks and me having, uh, thinking I had cancer, having a tumor removed and almost dying from a near sepsis infection after that because of what happened in the hospital under that covering. And for years on repeat, and this is bad because this is, this is not a good response, okay? But on repeat, I would think to myself, I wish I would have said, I'll take my chances because what happened to me under your covering really sucked. That's the flesh, okay? Just in case you're wondering. Grant's laughing. He's like, that would have been so embarrassing. And I probably would have said it, to be honest. So I'm glad the Lord did not let me think about that in that conversation. But 
where do we get this thinking that I, as your pastor, have permission to say to you that if you are responding in faith, you're going to be prey for the devil? What? But how many of you guys know somebody who thinks this way? Thank you. <laughs> I got one. No, I know you guys are thinking that way. It's crazy to me that we have taken these two scriptures and these handful of others and have said, this person, this human speaks to me for God. And now I am shamed if I even remove myself a little bit from that thinking. Guys, that is the leaven of the Pharisees. That is 100% the spirit of religion. Why? Because Jesus died on the cross to remove your need for an intermediary. He stood there and he shouted out, it is finished. And the earth had a radical response to that. An earthquake comes, rocks are breaking, this giant veil tears in two, and it is heaven proclaiming, now you don't need someone to tell you, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, technically after Pentecost, but you guys know what I'm saying. And at that point, you are now being led by his spirit, not by your pastor, And I, I'm not trying to like rally you guys to a cause. I'm trying to help you see how did we get here? How did we allow this thinking to stand in the place of what Jesus has said? Listen, if you ever think that, you, that God is leading you to something that is scriptural and I disagree with you, you better go do that thing that is scriptural. If God is leading you to something that's not scriptural and I disagree with you, that's a different situation. But even in that, it is never our place to come to you and say, look, this is wrong, unless it's sin. But that's what the word is for. Are you guys tracking with me? So we have created this structure in the church that from what I can tell is so anti-biblical and we have blessed it by continuing to submit to it. And I'm just gonna go out on a limb here and tell you that God's not happy with that. I'm going to tell you the way he's been talking to me in my private time with him about the spirit of religion and his true thoughts about it. He's not happy. The way that he views this, I wish I'd brought my journal, I'd read it to you. The way that he views this is that the spirit of religion has become an imposter to God's people. I said this to you last week, I'll say it again. The spirit of religion is trying to rob heaven of the glory that you give to God when you respond in obedience to his leadership in your life. If you are waiting for me or Grant or anyone to tell you what to do with your life, you're looking at it wrong. Because we all come side by side to the same source and we receive from the same source. Let me put it this way. I'll just say how Paul said it. We're all a part of the same body and Jesus is the head. And the last time I checked, he's really confident in his position as the head. He trusts you. Not because you're necessarily trustworthy, but because he trusts himself in you. Look, if you're in Christ now, you are a new creation. You're not some Old Testament person showing up to the temple, paying your tax, and, and cutting the throat of a lamb, and hoping for the best the rest of the year. We are a new creation. We're invited into something different, and we have to understand this so that we can move forward as the church that God ordained. I keep pushing this like it's my Bible. This is my journal. This is not the Bible. So we have elders, we have apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. We have elders and pastors. We have deacons. Um, and, 
And I was talking to Grant the other night. I'm like, you know, what's fascinating to me is that the list uh, that's in there for what to look for for an overseer, you know, the first Timothy list of, uh, you know, you've got to be, have a good family. You've got to not drink alcohol. You've got to do all these things. And, and I'm like, so what kind of people were in that church? Because in the American church, all the people look like that. So how do we pick who's an overseer when you all look like that? But in that church, we have to assume the majority of people didn't look like that. The majority of people were drinking a lot. The majority of people had really wrecked family lives. The majority of people were not parenting their kids well. And that's why Paul is saying, look, these are the people that you're looking for, the ones that look like this. So again, how did we get here as a church where our club, everybody looks like us, everybody is all cleaned up, nobody has any issues, and this feels good to us, and meanwhile, all the people out there are struggling and drowning and hurting, and we're just going, high five, brother, what a great Sunday, see you next week. Oh, I cannot be bothered going over by them. Gross. I'm just going to tell you, in my private conversations with people, so whoops, it's going to be public now, but in my private conversations with people, this is the thing that's been burning on my heart. As, as a global, as a corporate church, a national church, we keep saying we hate abortion. We stand against abortion. Abortion is wrong. We could never vote for somebody that allows abortion. But how many of us that are decrying that and shouting that and typing that on all of our platforms are actually going into neighborhoods where people get abortions and getting to know these young women? How many of us are actually volunteering at abortion clinics so that we can meet somebody at the check-in? And I, I don't know, I'm just saying. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I'm just saying, right? How many of us are volunteering, I know some of us are, but at places like the Hope Crisis Pregnancy Center or the Eden Clinic where they provide resources for, for girls and begin to help them see, they give free ultrasound, stuff like that. How many of us are actually putting our life where our mouth is about it? Okay, so that was probably offensive to some of you. Let's talk about the poor. Can we talk about the poor for a second? Let's do that. Let's just go around to the other side. How many of us are going, look, oh, okay. Look, I'm a keyboard tyrant, and I'm going off and off and off about how systemic racism is killing our nation. And I believe systemic racism is a problem. But how many of us are posting on social media and not going in and offering tutoring in low-income neighborhoods? How many of us are saying, look, you need to change this government, but we're not going and saying, look, I'm going to take one family or two families and I'm going to advocate for them. How many of us in our careers and our jobs and our businesses are going around to our people of color and saying, look, how do you feel in this culture, in this environment? And what can I do to help you feel more safe? We were having a conversation with somebody in, in our network that was saying, look, I can't come to work this week because uh, of this, this theory that was going around. I don't, I don't know where it came from, so I'm not going to say anything about it, but that it's a really dangerous week for people of color this week. And she said, look, I don't feel like I can come to work this week. I need to work from home because I've been told that we're going to be targeted because of our skin color. So what do we do? If we're an ally to people, what do we do? We have an honest conversation about it. We're like, Grant's like, look, I absolutely bless you to stay at home if that's what you feel. Let's, let's pray about it. I'm praying for you. Let's talk, right? Instead of just going, oh, that can't be true. Your feelings are dumb. We get involved. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be passionate about that or you have to be passionate about abortion or whatever. What I'm saying is the thing you are passionate about, are you only vocal about it or are you doing something about it? 
Because what the church did in the Bible, it got involved with the people. It let the Holy Spirit put a burden on their heart and then go do something about it. They were burdened by the people who were worshiping pagan gods, so they sent believers to those cultures to begin to help them. Do you see what I'm saying? So what it looks like for us is to begin to stop seeing, to stop agreeing with the leaven of the Pharisees that we are some sort of elite separatist that can't be bothered with the frustrations of getting involved with someone's life. And I, I'm just as guilty of it as anybody. And so I'm not saying this to say, look at me and all the ways that I'm doing this or that. That's not what I mean. I'm saying this is the biggest burden on my heart as I've been watching our nation the last four months, is what good does a Facebook post do? Clearly Nothing. And so when I'm looking around, I'm going, God, what are the issues you want me to contend for? And then I look at somebody else and say, that issue is something you're contending for, and I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong to do that. I'm going to stand alongside and, and let you know that God has entrusted that to you. So you go after that, and God's entrusted this to me. Does this make sense? I think that's what it looks like to get rid of the religious spirit. I think that's what it looks like to get rid of the leaven, the little thought that pops up in us that goes, well, uh... Well, maybe God doesn't. Well, how could that be? Because I don't see that. We've got to beware of that. So this is where I want to land. I know we're kind of a little bit all over the place talking about this, but there's just, it really, it grieves and it breaks my heart that this hierarchy that we've created and this system that we've created in American church continues to repeat itself because we, we want the praise from our leaders and so we, we keep going into the same system to get that, right? And it's this never-ending cycle. And I know, because I know so many people's stories, how many of you have, have been genuinely broken by things that pastors have said when they were out of bounds to say that to you. In the Bible, there's a ton of scripture about obeying your governmental leaders, not breaking the rules, not breaking the law. That's, and there's strong language about that, but it's to your governmental leaders. And to the pastors, it's an entirely different thing. Most of the strong language is to the pastors themselves, not to you to submit to the pastor, right? And I think what we have to do is we have to be willing to reach across and when you hear people's stories, be, be able to speak up and say, look, that wasn't right. I don't think that's how that pastor should have said that to you. It doesn't mean that they're terrible. That, I mean, it could just be they were really tired and they let their flesh get the best of them. It could be a great person having a bad moment, right? But it's okay for us to call that out. And I just felt like the Lord put it on my heart as I was preparing for today that I don't know if, what happens when we get wounded outside of what God is doing, and, and wounding is probably the wrong word for it, but when God disciplines us, it doesn't feel good. It kind of feels the same sometimes, right? When we get wounded and, and God had no part in it, sometimes that, those thoughts, those feelings, those words, they replay in our minds. Anybody ever experienced this? I remember after this conversation, I was telling you that I wish I had said that whole terrible thing that I'm not going to repeat. Um, for three years, for three years, the words from that conversation just played constantly in my mind. I remember saying to the Lord, how do I shut this voice up? How do I stop that? Because it makes me feel like I'm doing something wrong when I'm obeying you and you are confirming it and I know I'm in the right place, but I can't get this voice out of my head. And God began to challenge me to take authority over it, to repent, to, to come out of, I mean, just do all the things, right, that we know to do, to ask the Lord to cleanse my mind, to, to interrupt those thoughts and take them captive. And it did work. 
But what I wish I would have done, what I wish I could have had the opportunity to do was to have a conversation and realize that it just was wrong. It was the wrong thing to have said to bring some peace to that. And I felt like the Lord wanted me to do a little bit of like repentance on behalf of those that are colleagues of mine who have said and done things that were wrong. So if you've ever had a pastor who said something to you that hurt you or crippled your momentum in the Lord, I am here to tell you as a pastor, I am sorry. And those things should not have been said that way. And I want us to pray right now to ask the Lord to put a stop to what the enemy wants to do to continue to torment you by something that was out of bounds anyway. Amen? So I just want us to all just close our eyes for a second. If you're like, man, I've had great relationships with my pastors, that's amazing, and, and praise God for that. But if you're someone who would say, I struggle with that, or I hear these things in my mind, I just want you to put your hand on your, on your head right now. And let's just ask the Holy Spirit to intervene. God, right now, in the name of Jesus, we bring all of these thoughts, all these places where the enemy has, has been crippling us, we bring them before your throne right now in Jesus' name. And we cut the tie to these wounding experiences with the blood of Jesus. Right now, we sever those connections to those thoughts and the memories that have brought so much pain. And right now, Lord, I release the blood of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your redeeming blood, and we release the blood of Jesus over each and every one of these, the ones that are listening and the ones that are in the room, that we would be able to emerge victorious and free. We put a stop right now to the cycle of torment that has come on the deepest places of our soul. And God, I repent on behalf of the, the spiritual leaders in our area who have used their authority incorrectly, who've gone out of bounds from what you have instructed in your word. Lord, would you bring redemption? Would you bring cleansing? Would you get rid of the leaven of the Pharisees? And would you expose the spirit of religion in our midst and around us so that we can walk free in Jesus' name? In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Seal it up. And God, in its place, let's just take a second for those of you guys that are praying into this. Just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you right now. In that place, God, what do you want to say? What do you want to put? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So right now I just release over you peace. I release over you a sound mind. I release over you the ability to hear God in a greater way. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord. Seal it up. And for everybody else, I bless you to see with God's eyes any place in your heart where the leaven of Pharisees has come in. And I bless you to go on a journey with God unlike anything you could have ever dreamed of or expected as we remove the veil of religion from our eyes and get to encounter the Lord Jesus in such a spectacular way. I bless you to see him like never before. In Jesus' name, amen.